welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion stops here. First of all, I want to wish you a happy and blessed Easter season. Easter Sunday, of course, the celebration of the day on which Jesus Christ rose from the dead by his own almighty power and according to the predictions that were made by himself and the prophets of Israel, he conquered death and the grave and finished the work of our redemption by reuniting his body and soul in his resurrection. Now, for the world, even for some of our separated brethren, Easter's already over. But for Catholics, it's just begun. The Easter season lasts for 50 days, during which we celebrate the 40 days that Jesus remained on earth, appearing to his disciples until his ascension into heaven, followed by nine days of prayer in preparation for the descent of the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Easter Sunday. So the Easter season, Easter time, or Easter tide, uh, was historically referred to as Paschal tide, or Paschal time, or the Paschal season, from the Latin Pascha and the Hebrew Pash, or Pasch, meaning Passover. So a reference to how the angel of death, who came for the firstborn of Egypt, passed over the houses of the Israelites, who had sprinkled their lintels and doorposts with the blood of the Paschal lamb. And because the Jews that same night were delivered from bondage, and then passed over through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. And now, through the Passover of Christ, the Lamb of God, we Christians are redeemed by his death and resurrection, and pass over from the bondage of sin to the freedom of the children of God in the Promised Kingdom. Uh, which, And we pass through uh, baptism into, on our way into that kingdom, the way they pass through the Red Sea um, into, out of Egypt, and then later through the Jordan into the Promised Land. So the Feast of Easter is kept in such a way as to confirm our faith in Jesus Christ and his church, and to pass over from the death of sin to a new life of grace. And uh, this, the proper response to this is to say, Alleluia, praise God. And of course, all during Lent, the Alleluia has not been heard. And what a joy to hear and sing Alleluia on Easter. And Alleluia, by the way, is the Latin for the Hebrew Hallelujah. So if you've ever wondered what the distinction is, it's like one's Latin and one's Hebrew. And the word Alleluia appears twice in the introit for Easter Sunday and the uh, traditional Mass. So the very first proper prayer, the Feast of the Resurrection, includes twice uh, the exclamation Alleluia. And of course, during the Easter time, the Regina Chaley prayer is recited daily, morning, noon, and evening, in place of the Angelus. And the Alleluia Oh, excuse me. <coughs> Pardon me. The Alleluia is rather conspicuous. Queen of heaven, rejoice, Alleluia, because the son you were chosen to bear, Alleluia, has risen as he said, Alleluia. Pray for us to God, Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary, Alleluia, because the Lord is truly risen, Alleluia. O God, who by the resurrection of thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, granted joy to the whole world, grant, we beseech thee, that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, his mother, we may enjoy the happiness of eternal life through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. That's a lot of alleluias. <laughs> Speaking of the Regina Chaley, there's a, a pious legend to the effect that Pope St. Gregory the Great heard the first three lines of the Regina Chaley being chanted by angels on an Easter morning during a procession in Rome, and that he himself added the fourth line, 
ora pro nobis Deum, alleluia, pray for us to God, alleluia. Now, we do know for sure that the Regina Celli uh, goes back to the Middle Ages, specifically to the 12th century, and that the Franciscans used to pray it each evening after Compline in the first half of the 13th century. And today, uh, the Regina Celli remains one of the Marian antiphons that is chanted after night prayer, Compline, in the Divine Office. So today, many Catholics pray the Angelus, or during Easter, the Regina Celi, just once a day at noon. But I think it is as commendable to pray the Angelus, or the Regina Celi, each day, as it is to pray the Daily Rosary, and especially for children. And I think it's important to share the treasures of our devotional traditions with our children, and that we shouldn't underestimate the significance of handing on what we've received. You know, learning these traditional Marian prayers and devotions by heart, something that helps the little ones connect to their Catholic heritage, yes, but but even more importantly, it helps connect them to the Blessed Virgin, whom our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross made to be the mother of us all. And that's no nonsense. All right, well, on to the uh, traditional gospel for Easter Sunday. It's taken from Mark 16, verses 1 through 7. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought sweet spices, that coming they might anoint Jesus. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they come to the sepulcher, the sun being now risen. And they said one to another, Who shall roll us back the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And looking, they saw the stone rolled back, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed with a white robe, and they were astonished. Who saith to them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There you shall see him as he told you. And thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, because of the Sabbath, right, from sundown to Friday to sundown on, on Saturday, Jesus' body couldn't be properly prepared for the burial, right? Can't do any work on the Sabbath. So the holy women purchased the spices on Saturday evening after the Sabbath was ended so that they could go to the tomb early Sunday morning and anoint Jesus' body. Along with the practical and ceremonial purpose of the anointing, they did this as a sign of their love and devotion. And in that respect, their action isn't unlike how we bring flowers uh, to the grave of a loved one today. And Mark mentions the angel at the tomb, just the one angel, where Luke mentions two. But these accounts are not contradictory. See, each of the gospel writers chose to highlight different details uh, as he explained the same story. Uh, just as eyewitnesses to some newsworthy event today might highlight different aspects of, of that event or of what they witnessed. And Mark's purpose was to relate what was spoken by the angel. In any case, the unique emphasis of each of the evangelists actually demonstrates, um, it shows that the four accounts were written independently, and that should give us confidence that they are all true and reliable, more so, in fact, than if they agreed in, in every particular. Now, the resurrection is obviously it's vitally important to Christianity, and for several reasons. First, because Jesus kept his promise to rise from the dead, and so we can have confidence that he'll keep all his other promises as well. 
Um, the resurrection confirms that the kingdom of God is more than a, uh, a hope or, or an idea or a dream. The resurrection assures us that the ruler of God's eternal kingdom is the living Christ, a person with whom we can have an intimate relationship today. And Christ's resurrection also gives us the assurance that we too will be resurrected at the last judgment. But what about right now? Well, through the ministry of the church, the very power of God that brought Christ's body back from the dead is available to us right now to bring our morally and spiritually dead selves back to life so that we can remain in the state of grace, which is the kingdom, and the kingdom that Jesus says is within you, and then consequently to grow in holiness. So the resurrection finally provides the substance of the church's witness to the world. The good news does not just consist of, of moral lessons from the life of a good teacher. The gospel that we proclaim hinges on the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's no nonsense. And speaking of which, his resurrected body is the same body that was crucified on Calvary, complete with the prints of the nails in his hands and feet. However, as Jesus foreshadowed on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is now a glorified body. And one of the properties of the glorified body is what theolog theologians call subtlety. Right, this is what allowed Jesus to pass through the locked door of the upper room uh, and vanish from the sight of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, that being the case, why did the stone need to be rolled away from the entrance of his tomb? Why not just pass through the stone the way he passed through the locked door? Well, I suspect he did just that. The angel didn't roll away the stone so that Jesus could get out, but so that others could get in and see for themselves that Christ had indeed risen from the dead, just as he said. And you'll note that the angel in our gospel makes special mention of Peter. I think that's to show that in spite of Peter's denials, Jesus hadn't disowned him as a prince of the apostles. He had great responsibilities for Peter to fulfill in the church that he founded. And early church father, Bishop Papias, tells us that St. Mark was Peter's secretary, or literally his interpreter. And being a tradesman, um, you know, Peter was a fisherman in Galilee. Peter almost certainly spoke Greek as well as Aramaic. So what did he need a translator for? Well, the fact that Mark is a Roman name gives us a clue that Peter took him to Rome because he spoke Latin, which was the official language of the empire. Hence, Pope Innocent III maintained that the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer in the Novus Ordo, was the most venerable Eucharistic prayer in all of Christendom, because it can be traced back to Peter, who, presumably with Mark's assistance, drew up the Roman liturgy in Latin. In fact, there's a, a tradition that just as Matthew's gospel was originally written in Aramaic and then translated into Koine Greek, Mark's gospel was likewise translated into Greek after first being written in Latin. Because, although Latin was the language spoken in Rome and technically the official language of the empire, Koine Greek was still the lingua franca of much of the Mediterranean world, right? Hence the sign on the cross uh, that says Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Okay, lots more to say about Easter, the resurrection, and divine mercy. Coming up and return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Speaking of Virgin Most Powerful, coming up this June the 17th, we have our annual VMPR slash CRC, that's Catholic Resource Center, our annual men's conference. This is our most popular conference after the Spiritual Warfare Conference, and uh, I'm sure this year will be no exception. We're going to have Jesse and his brother, Johnny Romero featured at our men's conference this year. And so I do recommend that you register now. It's going to be at the Sacred Heart Chapel. There's limited seating. It will sell out. So don't be afraid to visit vmpr.org or call our office toll-free, 877-561-2151. Your donation uh, of $45 per person or $80 for a father and son guarantees you a seat at the chapel and access to all of the audio and video recordings that will be made of the conference. Okay, now, we were talking about the first Easter Sunday, and and one thing that everyone agreed on at the time, both the enemies of Christ and his friends, was that on that first Easter Sunday morning, the tomb of Christ was empty. Now, I suspect you know that I'm a medievalist, and I have a particular love for medieval England. Westminster Abbey, which I've had the pleasure to visit, was built by the last reigning Saxon king before the Norman invasion, St. King Edward the Confessor. Now, it's been the site of every uh, coronation, English coronation, since 1066. St. Edward the Confessor himself is buried there, along with some 3,000 others, including many saints and knights and ladies and nobility and royalty, uh, some of whose names are commemorated with plaques, many of whom uh, are lost to the sands of time. But for all its significance to the history of England, Westminster Abbey is just one of many places around the world where you can find the remains of celebrated people. However, if you were to visit Jerusalem, you will find at the entrance to the Holy Sepulchre, the tomb of Jesus, the words of the angel from Mark's gospel, non est hic, he is not here. Jesus is not dead, and as the angel told the holy women that first Easter Sunday, he is not to be looked for among the dead. He is risen. He is not here. He is alive and present with his people. And yet, many still choose to ignore or deny the resurrection of Jesus. So every year, just in time for Easter, come the the TV shows and the magazine articles and so on that attempt to relativize the sacrifice and the triumph of Jesus, or to cast doubt on the biblical accounts, or purport to give uh, information about some new archaeological discovery that's going to change everything, but which always comes to nothing, first of all, because such denials are based on the Uh, the logical fallacy, the a priori assumption that miracles just can't happen, which of course cannot be proven empirically and therefore is itself a statement of faith, and because all the available evidence rather tends to support Jesus' claim to be the only begotten Son of God. Certainly no one before or since has ever predicted his own death and resurrection and then accomplished it. You remember, everyone at the time, both Jesus' friends and enemies, agreed that the tomb was empty that first Easter Sunday morning. So the question is, how do you explain the empty tomb? Now, there are several theories over the centuries, uh, and people still trot them out today, even though, as we'll see, Scripture itself shows how these modern theories are anything but new. And the first is probably the most popular. It was popularized in the 19th century with the rise of 
so-called historical, critical, biblical uh, uh, study, biblical criticism. It was called the swoon theory, that Jesus was in fact only unconscious and later revived. Well, (laughs) common sense tells us that if Jesus had miraculously survived his scourging and crucifixion, and if you've ever seen Mel Gibson's Passion, you know how unlikely that is, uh, even if he had survived, he would have still had to struggle out of the shroud, move the heavy stone from the tomb, get past the Roman guards unseen, make his way back to Jerusalem, hide all day, and then visit the upper room. And and if he had done that, his condition would hardly have suggested a miraculous resurrection because you know he had been reduced to a bloody pulp. And then add to that the fact that the scenario goes directly against the biblical account. John 19 tells us the Roman soldiers didn't break Jesus' legs because he had already died. And Pilate was somewhat surprised by this, although, you know, given the extent of his scourging, he may have bled out rather than uh, died from exhaustion and asphyxiation the way that uh, people normally did on the cross. Um, But to be certain, one of the uh, soldiers there pierced the side of Jesus with a lance. And that's John 19, 32 through 34. So say what you will about the ancient Romans. They were good at killing people. <laughs> they, they had that down to a science. Uh, also, a Roman soldier reported to Pilate that Jesus was dead. That's Mark 15, 44 and 45. And also in John 19, verses 38 through 40, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, wrapped Jesus' body. They took it down from the cross. They wrapped it in the linen and placed it in the tomb. So the swoon theory, that's the stake through the heart of that, hopefully for the last time. Uh, Number two, the women made a mistake. They went to the wrong tomb. Oh, those hysterical women. Now, Mary Magdalene and and the other Mary, Mary of Cleopas, were present when Jesus was placed in the tomb. And that's, that's in all of the synoptic gospels. And I suspect that they were unlikely to ever forget the location of that tomb, much less to forget it between Friday evening and, and, and Sunday morning. Also on Sunday morning, Peter and John, uh, and John, who was also present with the three Marys at the crucifixion, also went to that same tomb. Right, So that would mean that they, they went to the wrong tomb also, which is, as I say, unlikely. Number three, the disciples stole Jesus' body. Now, when I say, oh, by the way, when I say unlikely they went to the wrong tomb, we're going to demonstrate that quite clearly from John's gospel in a minute. Uh, the next theory that the disciples stole Jesus' body. Now, of course, the, the Jews were concerned about that very thing. The scripture tells us, Matthew 27, that the tomb was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers precisely to prevent that. Now, the Christian faith rests on the resurrection. If, if the apostles had stolen Jesus' body, they would have known that their faith was really meaningless. They, they would have known that it was based on a lie. And yet, after the resurrection, the disciples were ready to die for their faith, and in fact, eventually did. You show me any other 12 men in history who were willing to die a, a torturous martyr's death for something they knew was a lie. And then the, the final uh, explanation is the least likely. Um, the religious leaders stole Jesus' body. You know, this is no-nonsense Catholic, and this makes the least sense of all. I mean, the Jewish leaders wanted above everything else to put a stop to the claims of Jesus' resurrection. So if they had stolen his body, they would need only have 
to have produced it, to put an end to the claim that he rose. But of course, we know they didn't. And then lastly, in Matthew 28, we read that Jesus' resurrection was always ca already causing a great stir in Jerusalem. That while the holy women were moving quickly through the streets, oh my gosh, there's rented lips. Let me start again. <laughs> while the holy women were moving through the streets to, to bring the disciples the joyous news that Jesus was risen, uh, the religious leaders were busy plotting how to cover it up. And, and there's still a great stir of the resurrection today. And there's still only two choices at the end. Either you turn your back on, on the truth by denying the resurrection or ignoring it or trying to explain it away, or you accept that Jesus rose from the dead and everything that implies. And that's no nonsense. Now, we've been talking about the biblical evidence that Jesus arose. And that's rather like, um, like a deposition. That's like a testimony in a courtroom. And these days, people are looking for physical evidence, right? The science, follow the science. So the question is, is there any physical, that is to say, is there any forensic evidence that our Lord rose from the dead? And contrary to popular opinion, I believe that not only does such evidence exist, but that it was seeing such evidence that caused St. Peter and John to believe in the resurrection even before they personally encountered the risen Christ. And I'm talking, of course, about the Holy Shroud of Turin. Now, if you've ever seen the shroud, it's um, about 14 and a half feet long by three and a half feet wide, and it bears the image of a crucified man. In fact, it bears both the front and the rear image of the man, since he was laid on it after his burial, and then it was you know, pulled over his head and down over his body. And I suspect one reason for this is that the shroud was not designed to be a burial cloth, but a tablecloth. In fact, I believe it was the linen on the table of the Last Supper. And that's another talk for another time. But you may have noticed that Scripture also refers to a cloth and a smaller cloth, and they refer to the smaller cloth that had been on his face as precisely as a napkin. Okay. Now, I first encountered the Shroud of Turin when I was working as creative director at St. Joseph Communications. Uh, a fellow in Texas who had met Tim Staples had a machine that printed out blueprints, and he printed out a life-size image of the Shroud of Turin. Well, actually, two life-size images, one of the frontal image and one of the dorsal image, or the back image. And I mentioned this to my wife, and she was uncharacteristically skeptical because she had been taught that the Shroud was a fake, that it was a medieval hoax, that it had been scientifically debunked. And more on that in a minute. Well, Tim, you know, had seen the image, and he pointed out that it's not clear. The image isn't clear when you're close up on it, but that only as you backed away from it would it come into focus, would it become clear. So when the printed image arrived, we tested it out at the office, and it was quite remarkable. So I brought it home. I unrolled the paper with the frontal image and had Betty, you know, she's like, I don't see anything. I said, just start backing up, which she did until the image came into focus, and she was profoundly moved by this. And consequently, she's been studying the Shroud ever since and has become quite knowledgeable uh, as a syndenologist. That's what they call somebody who studies the Shroud. She certainly knows more about it than I do. Uh, she's given presentations on the Shroud. Uh, when our kids were younger, she arranged for a field trip to the Shroud Center, which used to be down in Fountain Valley uh, and had all these, you know, um, 
uh, pictures and so forth dis displays about the shroud. And uh, in fact, when we visited there after the presentation, she got chatting with the folks uh, that ran the place and they offered her a job as a, a docent, right? Because of her knowledge about the, about the shroud. And then she keeps up with uh, Barry Schwartz, who was the photographer of the original STIRP team. And that's the Shroud of Turin Research Project. And Barry has been kind enough to appear on this program. Uh, Betty and I had the honor of seeing his presentation on the Shroud and then also, you know, going out to dinner with him afterwards and, and, and talking about it. And it's interesting that Barry Schwartz was, you know, essentially an agnostic. Um, he was Jewish, but, you know, kind of just culturally so when he was chosen to be the photographer for the Stirp team. And he has since become, you know, a, a believer in God, a believing Jew. He's convinced that the shroud is the burial cloth of Jesus and that it constitutes physical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. B but he's not converted because he considers it important to retain his Jewish identity in order to be a more effective witness to the authenticity of the shroud. Because as a Christian, you know, uh, he could have had his opinion written off as a product of his faith and not the evidence. Be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You know, I we've been talking about the Shroud of Turin, and I can tell you that in my experience, those who actually study the Shroud typically become convinced that it is, in fact, the burial cloth of Jesus. Now, back in 1998, when Pope St. John Paul II venerated the Shroud, he said, and I quote, What counts above all is that the Shroud is a mirror of the gospel. In fact, if we reflect on the sacred linen, we cannot escape the idea that the image it presents has a profound relationship with what the Gospels tell of Jesus' passion and death. And when you look at the shroud, you can. You see, the, for example, the marks of the scourging, uh, scourging at the pillar, clearly visible. And those wounds, they're scattered all over his whole body, from, from the, the shoulders down to the lower part of the legs. And... You know, forensics, of course, has come a long way, and forensic analysis of the scourge marks has revealed that it was two soldiers that carried out that uh, scourging on one on either side of Jesus, that one was a little taller than the other. I mean, they can tell a lot of things by by studying those marks, and, and that after using one type of whip or rod, they changed to another kind of scourge called a flagellum which has, you know, it's like a cat of nine tails. It has multiple leather straps that terminate in metal weights or pieces of bone. They have the kind of a, they leave a um, distinctively dumb shell or dumbbell shaped mark. And those are clearly visible. The whole body's covered with these wounds all over the back, the chest, the pelvic area, the legs, his calves. And there's about 120 wounds from the scourging that are visible to the naked eye. But in the year 2000, Using high-resolution photography and image enhancement, they discovered that there are actually hundreds more such wounds. And even with that, not all the scourge wounds are on the shroud because the image only shows the front and the back of the body. So we have no way of knowing how many uh, wounds there were on his sides. The wounds from the crown of thorns, also clearly visible on both the front and the back of the head. There's blood stains on the shroud. There's the wounds from the carrying of the cross that's also evident. The right knee 
shows a number of wounds. And the left knee is also wounded, but not quite as much as the right, which is consistent with the traditional accounts of the three falls of Jesus on the way of the cross. Uh, his right shoulder has a wound consistent with shouldering the cross. That, of course, the wound that Christ himself revealed to St. Bernard had pained him the most. And you can see that it bruised and abrased the shoulder and also reopened and widened the wounds of the scourging. And, and further down the back on the left side, there's a wound with a diameter of about five inches that indicates the weight of the cross rubbed or tore through his clothes and caused that second wound. And, uh, and the, the marks of the nails of the crucifixion also visible. And judging by the shroud, three nails were used, one for each hand, one nail for both feet. And the wounds on the shroud indicate that the nails were driven through the wrists and not through the palms of the hand. Now, the Romans, of course, were experts at crucifixion. They knew that if someone was crucified through the palms, that it wouldn't hold the weight of his body. The nails would tear through the flesh. So they nailed through the wrists because there's a space amongst the wrist bones called the testut spot. And uh, that destut space, and through that, uh, the nail could pass through there and be held by the bones of the wrist. And, and by the way, when the nail passes through that point, it injures the nerves of the thumb, causing the thumb to, to spasm, bend into the palm, and remain in that position uh, until death, which explains why only the four fingers of each hand are visible on the shroud, not the thumbs. Uh, and by the way, this does not contradict the biblical account that Jesus' hands were pierced, because the word for hand in the biblical Greek includes the wrist. Um, also, the shroud shows a large wound on the right side of the chest, which was caused by the soldier piercing the side of Jesus after death. John 19 tells us that the blood and water flowed out, and when a person dies, the right oracle of their heart fills with blood, but not the left side. So from John 19, we can understand that the soldier pierced the heart of Jesus with his lance from the right side, that if he had pierced it from the left side, no blood would have flowed out. Uh, so the wounds on the shroud image are entirely consistent with the biblical account of our Lord's passion. And personally, I believe that the first testimony to the authenticity of the shroud is to be found in sacred scripture. Gospel of John, chapter 20, we read, how after Mary Magdalene told the apostles that the tomb was empty, Peter and John ran to investigate. And John outran Peter, but waited for him to go in first, right? Scripture says, and when he, that is John, stooped down, he saw the linen cloths lying, but yet he went not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin that had been about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but apart, wrapped up into one place. Then that other disciple also went in, who came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. They already knew the tomb was empty. So what did Peter and John believe when they saw the linen cloths? That Jesus was risen. So what did they see in those cloths, or dare I say, on those cloths that caused them to believe? I think it was the shroud image. And if you've ever seen the shroud or pictures of it, you might remember that there are visible fold marks from centuries of it being folded up, which Scripture says is how Peter and John discovered it. But I would point out that it was folded in such a, a fashion that the image of the face was visible. And for, for many years, centuries, it was kept in a reliquary box with a circular opening on the top, 
that showed the face. Now, before the shroud ever made its way to Turin, which is another story from another time, tradition tells us that the shroud was in the keeping of St. Jude, and it was known as the Mandilion. And Mandilion means cloth, but, you know, the cloth, right? The Mandilion. And it became known in the East as Achaer Poiathon, the Achaer Poiathon image, which means not made by human hands. Even today, St. Jude is depicted carrying an image of our Lord, usually represented as a circular medallion. Now, obviously, St. Jude in the first century wasn't having metals struck, so I suspect that the medallion, the word medallion, is a corruption of Mandilion, and that the circular image of Jesus was inspired by the reliquary that housed the shroud image of the face of Jesus, which was visible in that circular opening. Now, we can also see from sacred art how our perception of the appearance of Jesus was indelibly influenced by the shroud. You know, the first few centuries of Christianity, there were no images uh, of Jesus. They had the, even the cross, right? They had the, the fish, the ichthus, uh, and it was popular amongst Christians to buy a, a statue of a young shepherd boy with, you know, short, short hair, short tunic, no beard, carrying a lamb over his shoulders as representative of Christ, our good shepherd, right? But after the church came up from underground, suddenly we have that uh, ubiquitous image of Christ with the long hair and the beard and, and all of that. Now, St. Jude, like I said, um, is believed to have taken the, or to have had the, the image of the shroud, the shroud image, and taken it to Edessa, where it affected the miraculous cure of the king there, King Agbar. You know, and the account of this story goes back to the early Christian history of Eusebius. And there is a famous image of the face of Christ known as the Mandilion of Edessa, which I have seen with my own eyes. Very, it's a wonderful image of the face of Christ. It was clearly inspired by the shroud image, uh, as also the justly famous icon called the Jesus Pentocrator. Now, there are, in fact, so many points of convergence between those images that it's virtually impossible for the Pentocrator to, to have been made without reference to the shroud image. So the question is, how did that image get on the cloth? And despite the longstanding claim that the image is a medieval forgery, the shroud has been demonstrated to be a cloth from the first century, and that the image is not a painting, nor is it made with dye, nor any known process. Hence that ancient title, Achaia Poiaton, not made by human hands. In fact, the image results from a subtle discoloration on the very ends of the fibers of the shroud. Uh, but at no point does the color penetrate the cloth as it would, you know, if it were paint or dye. And, and that's why you can barely discern the image at all when viewing the shroud close up and that it only emerges at the distance of a few feet. That's your brain. Uh, you know, doing the work there. And when the shroud was first photographed in the year 1898, uh, when they went to develop the, the plates, it was discovered that the image on the shroud is in fact a negative image and that the positive image was only revealed for the first time on that photographic plate, on the photographic negative. Obviously, the process of photography was unknown in the ancient world, or for that matter, in the Middle Ages. So how would a forger come to create a negative image in the first place? And then in the 1970s, a scientist at uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratories up here in Pasadena 
took a modern photograph of the shroud from a series that was made in, in 1931, as I recall, and ran it through a modified VP8 image analyzer, which is a piece of equipment used to analyze uh, topography in photos of extraterrestrial bodies, right? The mountains on, on Mars or whatever. And it was revealed that the shroud image includes three-dimensional information, which you don't get from a photo of a painting. In fact, they ran, they, they ran a photo of a painting, not just any painting, but the Mona Lisa through the image analyzer and got nothing. But when they ran a photo of the face on the, on the shroud through it, they got a three-dimensional image of the holy face of Jesus. So how did this remarkable image get on the shroud? Well, the physical characteristics of the shroud image um, are consistent with images produced by something called flash photolysis, which is an incredibly intense burst of light, such as that generated by an atomic explosion. And I seem to remember reading about a blinding light in the Gospels, that on Mount Tabor, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, when he allowed them a mere glimpse of his glorified body, Scripture says Jesus, uh, his appearance changed, and the English translations variously describe him as uh, his countenance shone like the sun, or that he appeared as bright as a flash of lightning, that even his garments became dazzling white, or as one translation has it, as white as the light. And what uh, was the transfiguration? Momentary vision of the glorified body, a glorification that took place uh, at the moment of his resurrection from the dead, and in that moment, I believe, created the image on this shroud. And that's not just my opinion, but shared by some formerly unbelieving scientists who examined the image. Right back after this. Welcome back. Well, before we leave the topic of the Shroud, I wanted to say one more thing. I wanted to return to the words of Pope St. John Paul II. And he said, for every thoughtful person, the Shroud is a reason for deep reflection, which can even involve one's life. The Shroud is thus a truly unique sign that points to Jesus, the true word of the Father, and invites us to pattern our lives on the life of the one who gave himself for us. And that is why I, like so many before me, like St. John Paul II in Turin, like my wife Betty in our living room, like Peter and John at the empty tomb, that I too saw the cloths and believed. Now, uh, as we mentioned back in the first segment, for Catholics, Easter is not a single day dedicated to celebrating the resurrection of Christ. It is an entire season. According to the, uh, the U.S. Bishop's website, Easter is the principal liturgical feast of the year. Uh, quote, Easter is the most important liturgical time for Catholics. It celebrates Jesus' victory of sin and death and salvation for mankind. It is God's greatest act of love to redeem mankind. So, I wanted to share with you in our final segment together uh, an article from the Church Pop website was uh, posted on Holy Saturday called Six Important Facts About Easter That Every Catholic Should Know. So uh, starting with uh, the fact that it is the uh, most important, uh, the principal feast of the liturgical year, here's five more things that you should know about Easter. 
uh, as I've already pointed out, it's not a, a single holiday, it's a whole season. And I mentioned in the first segment that it lasts for 50 days, which make it the second longest season in the church's calendar. And each year, Easter falls, uh, it's a movable feast, right? It always falls on a Sunday, not on a certain date. And uh, the Sunday is determined by it being the first Sunday after the first full moon on or after the spring equinox. Right, so that's the first day of Easter, and then it lasts until Pentecost Sunday, 50 days later. Also, the word Easter is itself significant. Uh, according to the United States uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops, it says, quote, the word Easter comes from Old English, simply meaning the East. All right, so for our Lorraine Bettner uh, fundamentalist fans out there, Easter is not the uh, pagan goddess. <laughs> it's an English word that means East. Uh, and the sun rises in the East. It brings light and warmth and hope. It is a symbol uh, for the Christian of the rising Christ, who is the light of the world, the bishops say. And I remember from my own childhood, uh, the, the couple of times my families attended the sunrise service on Easter. It was non-denominational. We would, it was in a different location every year. We'd gather outdoors and celebrate the resurrection as the sun came up. And um, so it was non-denominational, it was ecumenical, it wasn't Catholic, although I do remember one sunrise service that we attended, which was held on the field of a local Catholic girls' school in the foothills above Glendora, California, where I grew up. And uh, in the spirit of ecumenism, there was a Catholic priest who gave the sermon. But um, although that sunrise service was non-denominational, it was most certainly memorable. And for me, I think a remote preparation for, you know, accepting the gospel in my own life. Uh, what else? The octave of Easter. Right, the, the period from Easter Sunday until the second Sunday of Easter is called the octave, right? It's eight days. And this is the first phase of the Easter season and an extension of the Easter celebration. Uh, and Eastertide then is considered the period of time after the octave of Easter. So you start with the octave of Easter and then you have Eastertide. Also in the, in the Novus Ordo calendar, um, the octave of Easter, the second Sunday of Easter, is also known as Divine Mercy Sunday. Uh, and of course, and I should say we, that, that all Catholics celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday. It's not a special Mass. It doesn't have its own, you know, readings and prayers specific to the Divine Mercy. It is just to be celebrated on the second Sunday of Easter. And the diary, if you go to read St. Faustina's diary, she says that Jesus asked that there be a feast celebrating his mercy and told her that it should be the second Sunday after Easter. And according to St. John Paul II, back when he established Divine Mercy Sunday in 2001, he said, and I quote, Jesus said to Sister Faustina one day, humanity will never find peace until it turns with trust to divine mercy. Divine mercy. This is the Easter gift that the church receives from the risen Christ and offers to humanity at the dawn of the third millennium, right? It was his, is his Easter gift to the church. Um, and then let's see, Easter also includes the feast of the Ascension, right? The feast of Christ's Ascension into heaven falls on the 40th day of Easter. And this is according to the catechism of the Catholic church. Christ's Ascension marks the definitive entrance of Jesus humanity into God's heavenly domain. Whence he will come again, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, precedes us into the Father's glorious kingdom, 
so that we, the members of his body, may live in the hope of one day being with him forever. Jesus Christ, having entered the sanctuary of heaven once and for all, intercedes constantly for us as the mediator who assures us of the permanent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now uh, it also, this little article included a prayer from uh, St. Hippolytus of Rome. Christ is risen. The world below lies desolate. Christ is risen. The spirits of evil are fallen. Christ is risen. The angels of God are rejoicing. Christ is risen. The tombs of the dead are empty. Christ is risen indeed from the dead, the first of the sleepers. Glory and power are his forever and ever. Amen. Now, by the way, we just have a couple minutes left. I have not forgotten about my intention to finish sharing my response to the email I received from a certain SS from the UK a couple of weeks ago. And I'm just, I'm not ready to let go of the Easter joy quite yet and dive back into a refutation of error. So uh, I'm once again invoking my hostly privilege to kick it down the road yet uh, another week. So SS, if you're listening, fasten your seatbelt. And if you are at least interested, we'll get to it next Wednesday. God willing, and the creek don't rise. And I'll, I'll let you know, though, that it involves my take on the alleged apparitions at Garibandal and some claims made about Padre Pio. So stay tuned for that. Now, in our uh, just final moments here, I wanted to share with you, uh, speaking of the Church Pop website, when I was looking at that other article, I saw one about Divine Mercy Sunday, uh, how Divine Mercy Sunday um, offers the opportunity to obtain a unique plenary indulgence. And this is what the Divine Mercy Sunday was all about, um, that uh, it, it, it's, it's unique amongst um, plenary indulgences. Right? Any plenary indulgence that you gain will will free you from the, the guilt of sin and, and the, the punishments due for sin. That's what a plenary indulgence is about. But what makes Divine Mercy Sunday unique is that normally one of the three uh, conditions to gain a plenary indulgence is to be detached from all sin, even venial sin. And Jesus, though, does not require complete detachment from sin for the special graces that he offers on Divine Mercy Sunday. We'll talk about that in a minute, but this is the only plenary indulgement from which complete detachment of sin is not required. Now, first off, complete detachment of sin doesn't mean that you're without sin. It doesn't mean that you are not inclined to sin, okay? Uh, only two people on the earth have ever lived in that situation, and that's the Blessed Virgin and our good Lord Jesus Christ. But what it means to be, to not be attached to any sin, even venial sin, is that there's no sin in your life that you're not willing to renounce. There's no sin that you are not willing to simply give up. Now, that doesn't mean you will never commit that sin again. It doesn't mean you'll never fall. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're suddenly without concupiscence. No, what it does mean, though, is that you're willing to renounce it. And that Christian penance is, above all, a struggle uh, with sin and a willingness to be converted and to turn to God. So, you know, attachment to sin is different from, you know, the inclination to sin. Uh, but but how many of us can accomplish that? I mean, there are so many, I mean, just little venial sins that people don't want to give up. Oh, I gossip, you know, well, it's, it's, that's not terrible. I'm not going to go to hell for that. Why do I have to? No, you got to be, you have to be able to completely let that go. You know, to say, I'm going to make a firm purpose of amendment. I'm never doing that again. I'm, I'm not going to be attached at all. 
And of course, and that's what makes it difficult. The, the, uh, the classic, uh, usual conditions, right? So you have to do whatever it is that the indulgence entails. Plus you have to be, uh, you know, pray for the Pope, go to confession and, and, uh, receive communion and be free from attachment to all sins. Now with the divine mercy, uh, uh, indulgence it says you have to go to confession right and that's 20 days before or on or after divine mercy sunday to receive holy communion again 20 days before on or after divine mercy pray for the pope all this is pretty standard or and then in any church or chapel recite in our father the apostles creed and a prayer to the merciful jesus not a specific prayer but a prayer to the merciful jesus the example they give is merciful jesus i trust in thee right and do that in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Or you can participate in services honoring the Divine Mercy devotion. And again, the bishop's website entails a whole uh, a special service for Divine Mercy that you would do at 3 o'clock. Okay. And one must approach the indulgence with a spirit completely detached from the affection for sin, both mortal and venial. So why it doesn't require the complete detachment, you have to, at least in spirit, desire to be completely detached from sin, mortal or venial. Also, if you're ill, if you can't go to church, if you cannot attend, you can still obtain the indulgence by uh, uh, spiritual communion and, uh, and, and the confession and, and you know all the rest of the requirements fulfilled uh, when possible. All right, so typically the three usual conditions uh, would be, should be fulfilled as soon as possible. And that would uh, also uh, include reciting the Our Father Creed and a prayer to the merciful Jesus. But it's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful time in the church. And, uh, and you know, the church tells us that uh, even if it's impossible for people to do that, that on the same day they can obtain the plenary indulgence, if with a spiritual intention they're united with those carrying out the prescribed practice for obtaining the indulgence in the usual way. So this is the church trying to make this uh, special grace, this special plenary indulgence available to us all at this very, very sacred time of year. And that's No Nonsense. All right. Thank you so much for being with us yet again on No Nonsense Catholic. We'll be back next week. Same time, same channel. Don't... uh, uh, hesitate to be with us and don't uh, hesitate to visit vmpr.org and click on our shows and check out all of the programming that we have through vmpr also download our smartphone app so that you can access the uh, the programs and all of the rest of the uh, material on the app at any time at your convenience and also if you uh, can manage it uh, please say a prayer for us and uh, hit that donate button on the website right we appreciate it until then thanks for listening may god richly bless you and your family